Welcome back to See Speak Minnesota. I'm Jordana Green from WCCO Radio, joined as always by Kate Kelly, PNC Regional Bank President. Kate, I'm so happy to have us back here and I'm really excited about our next guest. Me too, this will be terrific. Thank you, Jordana. You got it. Uh, today, we're talking about the lessons of COVID, how a pandemic accelerated change for the University of Minnesota Health Sciences. And joining us now is Dr. Jacob Tolar. He is a PhD and Vice President for Clinical Affairs and Dean at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Dr. Tolar, we are thrilled to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Jordana. At the end of 2019, that was, I mean, just a little over a year ago, the health sciences schools at the University of Minnesota, including the medical school, where nearly 70% of the state's physicians were trained, were completing a, a reflective look, a look back at their work. They were looking deeply at how they would drive forward all of the changes needed to ensure their graduates and their research were serving the health needs of the state. Things really changed <laughs> at, uh, 14 months ago, but we are going to look back and look forward today. You know, as you mentioned, Jordana, we have with us today, Dr. Jakob Toller from the University of Minnesota. He leads the U of M Medical School and Clinical Affairs. Dr. Toller has built a reputation as being innovative and energetic as a leader on behalf of the health sciences. Dr. Toller, welcome again. We're so thrilled to have you with us. It's delightful to be here today. And uh, I can tell you that uh, the beginning of the COVID-19 was stunning. And uh, as we all remember, important dates in the history of mankind. I remember 29th of December when I saw for the first time the x-ray and a CT scan afterwards of a patient from China who had COVID-19. And uh, when we look at the x-rays, usually uh, we look at the black and white. The black is where the air is and the white is where the tissue of the lungs is and having um seeing uh a lot of black uh is is uh, is usually good but i i saw very little of that so the uh what was in front of me was a realization that there is a uh condition that may be much more devastating and much more impactful than we have seen before so what I've done when we came to the New Year's, I called my team together and shared this with them. And as I always do, it is really the people around me that do all the work and all the, all the really creative thinking. And what came out of that was uh, a plan to build a bandwidth with which we can respond. So everything we do at the medical school and the practice at the M Physicians and the M Health Fairview what we do is, uh, as other clinicians and other healthcare systems do, uh, we serve our patients. And we are in the mindset and skill set in a way that we, uh, that we build the reserves, that we build what, what needs to be done. So we had, uh, the first meeting was on the 11th of January. And um, so we had like three months before the first patient uh, was diagnosed in the state of Minnesota. That was on the 6th. And on the 11th, then WHO uh, declared the uh, COVID-19 a pandemic. And we have spent that time to build up that capacity that, that served us well in the, uh, in the afterwards. And we didn't do it alone. 
you cannot do anything of merit alone. And uh, we connected with our colleagues locally at the university. I have been held greatly by the glorious leadership of President Gable, who understood immediately how important that is. Uh, my colleagues across the university in the College of Science and Engineering and College of Design in the health science colleges, of course, they understood that. And then my colleagues, our colleagues in a, internationally, nationally and internationally, were incredibly helpful in shaping our mind around this. Because the, 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 the path is always in science and in new knowledge. It's, it's always tentative. It's always, uh, you don't actually know. If you knew, it would not be called science. If you knew, it would not be called research. So we have relied on that iterative process whereby we gain knowledge on behalf of the patients that we serve and the community that we serve. And uh, that is why we were able to, I think, unleash that uh, the superpowers of the University of Minnesota in a good way and, uh, and, and show that we trained for this. This is really you know, what you go to medical school for. You train for, uh, for, for circumstances that may be common or may be uh, uncommon, but down, down, deep down, you are getting ready for things that needs to be, need to be done. And there has been a sort of a, uh, cadence almost of uh, oh first of all there's the, it was like a Dunkirk you know we were entrenched in our own Dunkirk and and <laughs> taking enemy fire from the virus and the odds were not good and uh, but we were holding firm and I saw that 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 jump you know from the dread this is gonna be awful to sort of a partial relief you know we can handle that to truly delight that we were there helping all these people. Tell me how it affected the work that you were working on. It seemed, you know, you used the word stunning when you saw the first x-rays of COVID-19. Did the pandemic distract you from what was happening in academia? I mean, I, I know that it doesn't always work fast. Things don't work quickly in academia, but did this push you guys to function differently as a medical school? Jordana, this is a great question, and the answer is absolutely yes. And uh, uh, as uh, as we know, you know the, the 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 constraints or having no options, you know, focuses the mind beautifully, and that's exactly what happened with the collective mind of the university, because in 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 in, in face of the directive and the command of necessity to operate very quickly, the barriers were away. You know, there there was no light between the departments, between the colleges, between the engineering and medicine, and then the clinical care. So it really did uh, not distract us from the, uh, from the mission that we have, which is to serve Minnesotans, alleviate human suffering. It focused us on doing this the right way and doing this with scale and with speed. The distraction of uh, you know, the one thing that, that the focus obviously brought with it is it uncovered, as it always does, I think, uh, it amplifies what already is there. So, so teams and people who, were, who are sort of these uh, uh, rapid, uh, deep thinkers, you know, they, they emerged, you know, with, with glory. 
and that was wonderful because uh, because again uh, this is a uh, this is uh, what challenges bring I think that they uncover the potential that's that's uh, that otherwise would not be known because the challenges that we are faced with and I see this in the operating room in clinic and and in many other pursuits of, of in in society that. People are defined by not the challenges themselves, by by the responses to their challenges, and that's how they actually understand who they are, because of the ability to respond to these challenges. And I'm not diminishing in no way the the profound tragedy of uh, more than half a million people dying of this disease in in the in, in the United States, and the personal anxiety and loneliness that has come in its wake uh, for people that were indirectly affected perhaps by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, everybody responds in their own way, but the one thing that it, that it, uh, that it unleashed was the, 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 the capacity of, of, of acting in the presence of something that is helpful to others. And I think that the combination of boldness and reticence at the same time. You have to be bold to do certain things and you have to be humble or reticent too so that you don't make uh, unforced errors and unnecessary uh, diversions that, 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 that envelope the, uh, the university and, uh, and all the relationships, uh, especially the one with James Hereford and, and Health Fairview where a lot of the clinical care has happened uh, at the same time. That's amazing. Dr. Toller, in what ways um, did changes actually happen faster than you thought possible? Many, many, Katie. This is a, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a it's, it's like a catalyst, you know, for, uh, for change. We, we, we've been talking about virtual care, what we call telehealth, uh, for years, you know, literally years, three, four, five years. We were saying, this is so obvious, you know, if I need a cardiologist, you know, in Bemidji and there's nobody there, you know, there's nothing easier than have the general practitioner and, and she sits in front of the patient, does the exam, and then the cardiologist is on the screen over here and an oncologist perhaps is on another screen or you need a consult, you know, from hematology. And you can all do that, you know, that's, and then what happened that when we realized that there is not going to be a regular clinic exchange as we had before, uh, the teams that I serve, uh, on, especially in the Department of Medicine, they changed like this. In three days, we were on, on our way. And that was glorious. That was, that was fabulous, you know, just to see this. And then, then what happened was, what almost always happens, that we were learning from our patients, this is what we need, this is what we need to understand. And I think that the community was sort of learning from us, you know, help us do this together. It was a classic example of a co-creation of healthcare, which I personally think is absolutely essential. And it is, you know, some of the consequences are, uh, are uh, not intended and positive. You know, we always uh, talk about these revenge effects of something, you do something and, and it backfires like a boomerang, but some, some of them are favorable. And the favorable one, which I have been so glad to see is access to healthcare. So we have been uh, the whole United States, you know, the, the whole world, in fact, is struggling with how we enable access to health healthcare to people who don't live close to big hospitals and, and big um, cities. And here 
you had a tool. You had a tool how to do this. And, and that was fabulous. The other thing is that comes, you know, I was rounding uh, in the Regis Hospital this morning with uh, Mark Welton, you know, the CMO of, uh, of Fairview. And uh, it, is, it was his idea to come with the COVID-19 hospital. So again, in retrospect, everything is simple and, and, and obvious, right? But at the time it was not. We were the first place to my knowledge internationally that had that cohorting idea. And, and we had been able to put patients in the same hospital, which is, which is absolutely transformational. It's not just the usual public policy kind of way that you don't get infected. People who don't have the disease don't get infected if they are not in the same place and the staff as well. What was almost more important in this was that it enabled a very quick iteration of improvements. So that's how we came with the uh, with the giving the steroids early. That's why we uh, came up with the and not alone. Let me really be very quick to add that this was an international collaborative almost that we were exchanging information with people around the globe how to do this so the steroids was one the uh, the positioning of a patient uh, uh, the the ability to, or, or almost the necessity to uh, support on a ventilator people earlier than than usually we would uh, that resulted in that resulted in in a phenomenal uh, change in how well our patients did and uh, it's almost uh, horrific to think back what our percentages of survival were at the very beginning. And in early October, we were in the high 70% from the, for the survival on our ICU union, which, which I think is really the best one that we have had, we have known internationally. That's oh, it's amazing. amazing. Yeah, I know. I'm astounded by that and, and proud and thrilled to hear how this pandemic promoted sort of this global camaraderie, this global teamwork. But I imagine that also happened within the university. Uh, Dr. Tolar, I remember on my show here at WCCO Radio, we had a team from the College of Engineering and Design uh, come on and talk about how they, you know, uh, taped together an, <laughs> a yep. ventilator from the Home Depot. And then that, and, and they were putting the blueprints online as part of that global community so people could make them uh, in their home, really, if they needed it. So talk to us a little bit also about how your organization brought down those walls and worked as a team uh, that maybe you wouldn't have done before the pandemic? Oh, this is a great question. Thank you. So I think that academia is one of the best places you can possibly be. And this is not being critical of others, but we all self-select in you know, where we try to be and what we try to do. And I always was admiring the wealth of information and uh, that you get at the university. And the University of Minnesota has been, you know, one of the best examples of this. And I have worked at two different universities on the other side of the Atlantic before I came here about 30 years ago. And I am daily amazed, you know, how profoundly equipped uh, with research and development capacity University of Minnesota is. And it has uh, come to a reality with you know what you are asking with how we cross the border so i had a uh, you know a couple of things that uh, are happening you know it's almost like a um, like a random walk you know sometimes for some of the professions so i had a cardiac surgeon who could not uh 
you know, really perform her craft, you know, at the time when we had to stop, you know, some of the procedures that we typically would do. And uh, she went to uh, College of Design and helped with building the masks that we that we wanted. Uh, oh. I had an orthopedic surgeon who, uh, again, you know, elective orthopedics was not what we were uh, supposed to be doing. And he was one of the people who was helping that team uh, of anesthesiologists and the uh, engineers from the College of Science and Engineering to put together that uh, that ventilator in the in the yeah. toolbox and the ambu bag. I had people that uh, this is this is another a, a enormous example of this massive humanizing force of the COVID-19 pandemic. There were people that were just coming up with ideas and saying, how can I help? And out of that started things like uh, the algorithm in artificial intelligence that, that, uh, that uh, our teams have developed for diagnosing of uh, COVID-19. That was, that was brilliant because it is, it is the, 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 the computer vision that looks at the chest X-ray is much more accurate to diagnosing, uh, to suggesting the diagnosis of COVID-19 that, uh, that a radiologist is. And there's no disrespect to, to, to humans reading the x-rays. It's a good tool. It's not a decision clinical tool. It's one of the tools in the armamentarium that they can or may not use. But it again started from the collaboration between the computer science, the medical side of things, and so forth. We had an example of a, uh, we operate what we call MSIM, you know, uh, simulation unit in our new health science and education building. And um, uh, the one of the difficulties, you know, even for many of us that are used to uh, to prepare for the operating room, you know, the the procedures whereby you were supposed to follow for the protective protective equipment uh, that you were, you know, putting on are, you know, in for us, you know, are somewhat more complex than than we expected. So we had a training program for our clinicians and and then residents and then than even medical students that went in hundreds through this simulation program that again, you know, enabled the, 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 the return of the clinical personnel to, uh, to, the, to the hospital and uh, provide the care that we, uh, that we have trained to provide. Isn't that amazing, Jordana? I, mean, I just I know. think our listeners will love hearing all of this happening in our backyard. It's just terrific. Um, Dr. Toll, I was going to ask you about what technology and um, improvements COVID kind of spurred on, but you've touched on many of them. I also think about the facility that was stood up um, for COVID in very short order, right, along with Fairview. Um, that kind of comes to mind, too, with the technology. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. So that, that was that Mark Walton's idea, you know, that cohorting hospital, the COVID-19 hospital. And, and uh, Katie, you're absolutely right. It was stood up in seven days. Seven days. You know, this, this doesn't happen. You wow. know, this is a, you know, uh, this yeah. is, yes. there are some parallels, I think, to the, uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the organization and discipline of an army. This was like that. You know, this was, you just, you just have certain, uh, a certain idea, you have a goal, and you do this as quickly as you possibly can, because the people that need it are waiting for this. And that's where the, the whole idea of the shared consciousness across the system, that everybody understands, you know, this is why we are doing this. This is why 
you matter, you know, in whatever stations and whatever functionality you, you, you live professionally. And that idea of team of teams where the, the, the decision making is delegated to the individual on the frontline teams is incredibly important because that goes to the uh, comment Jordana made, um, which is that sped up the decision making and made it made it possible for us to run these pilots because we cannot understand complex and complicated systems unless we challenge them. So you have to do something. It's like in the ICU. You have to decide you know, something in a reasonably short period of time. And then you see what response you got. And then you change. And that iterative process, that, 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 that you know, almost victorious uh, feedback loop has been at the, at, the, at the source of how we were able to develop a network and the, the right blend of the, of, the, of the support and innovation at the same time. It makes me so proud to hear the contributions that our, our, we think our local university has made. Obviously, it's really a global university. Um, but Dr. Tolar, can you talk a little bit about equity in healthcare? You know, not only are we living through a pandemic, we are also here in Minnesota living through the wake of the death of George Floyd. And this racial awakening has really laid bare some of the inequities that people of color have to access to healthcare. So how has the university responded to providing greater access? That's a fundamental, that's an essential question for healthcare in general, with or without COVID-19. But what, uh, what uh, and again, like war, you know, it, it does not bring new issues typically, but it makes them unavoidable. And that is what we have seen with the health equity and COVID-19 pandemic. And we have seen the, 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 the unequal distribution of hardship, uh, clinical, economic, societal uh, in the last year. And I think that that energized the university and the, the clinical system, uh, the, the healthcare system and health fairview, other systems, the community to really respond in, in a much more powerful way than, than ever. And I think that we have been uh, seeing this on the, in the way. So first of all, you know, we have seen that it disproportionately affected the COVID-19 disproportionately affected people of color. This is not just the, the clinical status. You know, there are certainly, you know, conditions that predispose people to have severe cases of the disease. It was, it was equally important that, that the access was just not there. And, and, and we really need to fix both of these, uh, both of these deficiencies at the same time. So the, uh, the multitude of things that have happened were uh, getting the healthcare to the people that really need it. You know, they may be uh, downtown St. Paul, they may be downtown Minneapolis, they may be on the, uh, on, um, um, you know, in the greater Minnesota. And uh, equally, it was important for us to really have some structure behind it. So we have this mobile health initiative whereby we deliver uh, delivered, you know, the uh, the care at the at the time, and now we use the same for the uh, for the advocacy and delivery of the uh, of the vaccines. I was yesterday vaccinating, not just visiting, but vaccinating uh, people, uh, our patients, our community uh, members at the Riverside Plaza, uh, and that was that was again liberating, you know, to be able to bring this to uh, to uh, our you know fellow. Uh, 
Minnesotans that that uh, certainly you know English is not their first language. It's not mine either, uh, and and their socioeconomic status is very very different. And 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 I I wish you could see how delightful that was because there is a sense of community uh, in that vaccination center yesterday uh, that that uh, that everybody should see. You know this is this is this is beautiful and uh, beautiful on the larger. On the larger scope of things, I think that this will enable uh, the good parts of the academia in a way that uh, it has not been put in practice before. Because the, at least in my view, academia is not a place for politicians, prosecutors, preachers. It is really a scientific environment. And even arts and humanities actually fall in that category when we have this, uh, this, this, this reticence in one way, this respect, this, this, this ability to, to, to understand, to help understand things around uh, even as difficult problems as health equity is, and then take them in a platform of sophisticated, articulate, respective discourse to the community, to the society at large. And uh, I think it's a precious place because with the verbal violence sometimes, with the extreme position, with the, with the biases, you know, it can be desirably bias, it can be confirmation bias. You know, there are many, many yeah. out there. I hope that the academia can serve as a, as a place where the, uh, the, the stubborn optimism is gonna come forth and enable the healthcare in the United States to emerge from this dependence on wealth and uh, really be more a, a right than a privilege. I love that stubborn optimism. That's key. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, Dr. Tola, you touched on a lot, but is there additional research that you'd like our listeners to know about? The one that, that uh, needs to be highlighted first is the ability to put forth clinical trials uh, the, uh, this university has many, many accomplishments. One of them is that in 1920s, a, uh, one of our professors described what a clinical trial is, you know, why it has to be double-blinded. That means that the patient doesn't know what she's getting and the physician doesn't know what she's giving uh, that patient randomized, which means, you know, by chance, you know, and we have deployed this in, and that, that, that format has been adopted internationally, of course. So there have been, the clinical trials have really contributed to the knowledge because there have been medications, hydroxychloroquine, for example, that have been uh, that have been announced essentially in France and in China and elsewhere as this is the this is what you should be doing and we were uh, the first place that had the uh, the honor the privilege the the opportunity to actually test it and come back to not just Minnesotans but really uh, everyone and say is this is this good or is this not good sort of this dispassionate uh, passionately dispassionate approach yeah. to this dispassionate as a scientist passionate about the outcome about the necessity of the high quality information coming to uh, to the society so with this we were able to put together two dozen of clinical trials. We were the first place internationally that had uh, trials that were spanning all the severity categories that we uh, that we see in the uh, in the in the COVID-19. And that, I think, was the uh, was really uh, helping the international community. The other thing that we 
that I'm extremely disproportionately proud of uh, is a uh, ability to provide testing. With the, from the very beginning, we knew that we need to know what the we need to map the problem to being able to respond uh, well to the problem. And if you don't know what you are dealing with, it's really difficult to uh, to to respond, you know, with any kind of uh, intelligence to it. So the testing was so important, and. Um, we uh, almost immediately, my teams realized that we, we just won't be able to do it because uh, the supply chain was exhausted by uh, places and organizations that have more uh, ability to, uh, to, 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 uh, to have the supplies. And then that, that's almost a grassroots thing emerged, which were uh, the polymerase chain reaction, which is one of the simplest things we do in the lab. Uh, so I realized, you know, that, you know, it's in my lab, you know, it's in everybody's lab. So we put uh, in two floors in one of our buildings, we clear this up and uh, uh, the leader of that group, you know, she just made it happen in like three days. And in three days, we had the components, we had the, uh, the, 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 the flow, we had the process down and we had the scale. That was amazing. And, and she didn't know she can do this. And I still remember how amazed, you know, she was but that when I was asking her to do this and, uh, <laughs> and said, okay, you know, I'm just going to get this done and, and get back to you in, 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 in next week. And I said, no, sorry, I need something <laughs> tonight. <laughs> and and, and, and that, was, that was glorious, you know, that was something that, that was just fabulous to see that this is possible. And I am profoundly grateful and humbled at the same time by the ability of, of, the, of the teams that I serve to be able to accomplish this. And that's why then the state came to us and with Mayo Clinic, we were able to provide uh, for the state the testing capacity that has not existed before. It's incredible I to hear. I, I, isn't it, Kate? I mean, it's incredible to hear the speed and the efficacy at which things were accomplished. It's a 170 year old institution and yet it seems quite nimble in this conversation. Oh, and I just remember Dr. Toilet saying co-creation of healthcare in yes. so many ways, it, just mm -hmm. phenomenal. Really, it, it is. In there. It is, and uh, the and that's what it is, you know, because compassion and understanding of a, uh, a mutual shared understanding between the uh, physician and her patient is at the bottom of all good doctoring I know, and. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there has been time, I think the last several decades, where the distance between the clinician and the patient increased. And some, some you know, critics would say it's a partly function of the uniqueness of the healthcare system we have in the United States, where uh, it is dominated by private insurance. It is dominated by uh, wealth transfer that has nothing to do with healthcare, really. Uh, but I see in the last 12 months, in the last year, I see almost recapturing the territory uh, between the clinician and, and, and her patient uh, in this way, in this co-creative way. And what we have learned also with the communities is, um, is uh, I sometimes have to shake myself how stupid I was because we usually have this, 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 this immediacy of, okay, you know, I have this problem, I'm going to talk to an expert from a different field and, and then to an expert to another field in that problem. Well, you know, it works for something, but it does not work for this. So what I realized I need to do is to jump over that expert and go to the community directly. And that's where the knowledge is. 
that's where the expertise really is. And that's, the, that's again, the, the, the way of co-creating the healthcare that I think personally better stay with us because it's so good that we just should keep it in the hollow of our hands and just never let it go. I bet with your leadership, you'll hold on to that. So I have great trust yes, in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dr. Tolar, this was a fascinating conversation. And I just, I, I, I nobody wanted this pandemic, but it sounds like the university, the lessons that have been learned and the, the creations that have been made and the strides that have been taken are extraordinary. And we are grateful as a community uh, for your guys being so close to us. Thank you, Dr. Tolar. Thank yeah, you, thank Jordana. You. Thank you. Katie, you know, it has been an honor uh, to serve. Everything you just said, Jordan, I echo, um, but a great sense of pride. And hopefully we hold on to all the great learnings that you've highlighted. And there's Agreed. no better place than Minnesota to do this. I can tell you. <laughs> right, right. I've seen different places. You know, I, I truly think that uh, what uh, President Gable has put together as a team, as a response team, is, is one of the best teams I've ever seen uh, because uh, uh, clinical medicine is a part of it. Science is a part of it. Academic medicine has, uh, in my memory, never uh, done better than, than in, in under this uh, adversity, uh, but it really takes the the leadership and uh, it really takes the uh, the partnership we have with James Hereford and with others to to make this real for people and for the communities. Dr. Jakob Toller, PhD and Vice President for the Clinical Affairs and Dean of the University of Minnesota Medical School. Dr. Toller, we are so thrilled to have you on the program and thank you for the education. Thank you so much for having me. Thank who you are. Kate, another amazing episode. I, I mean, I, I have to re-listen to everything to absorb everything that the university is doing for us locally here and all over the world. I'm going to do the same thing. I think I may have to listen to it twice. <laughs> it was, it was well, Kate, great. Yeah. Uh, Kate, I want to thank you and I want to thank PNC Bank for making C-Speak Minnesota happen. You can get us on all of your podcasts, platforms. Thank you for listening to C-Speak Minnesota, the language of executives. Kate and I will be back next month. Thanks, Kate. Take care.